Hello and welcome to Connected by Life. I'm your host, Sean Paul Harrison. Connected by Life was created to have engaging conversations about important topics that impact physicians and our clinical stakeholders in regards to organ and tissue donation and transplantation. We're going to talk about the history and the implementation of the HIV Organ Policy and Equity Act, also known as the HOPE Act. We'll also discuss the impact on the outcomes of the organ donation and transplantation process. My guests are Dr. Jonathan Hand, the Section Head of Transplant Infectious Disease at Oshner Health, the Associate Medical Director and Co-Chair of Advisory Board at LOPA, as well as Joey Boudreau, the Senior Director of Regional Operations at LOPA. So before we get started, I'd like to share the privilege it's been to work alongside of y'all for so long. I seriously can say for, for countless other people, the pivotal role that y'all have had on the world of organ donation transplantation. And speaking of that, I'd like to talk about the evolution of the medical advancements that we've had because of the HOPE Act. And so, Dr. Han, if you wouldn't mind sharing on the HOPE Act what it is and some of the timelines that brought us to where we are today. I think it's important to realize that this type of work initially started in South Africa, um, and, a, and a surgeon there, Elmi Mueller, was the first ever to utilize HIV-positive donor organs for people living with HIV who were waiting on kidney transplants. And this was uh, partly due to the fact that people living in South Africa, the access to dialysis was a, a little bit less or, or different than it is in the United States. And so those first four kidney transplants were done, and that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in, I think, 2010. And fast forward, the, the folks in the, the United States saw that that had been done and, and said, well, we have a, a, a large opportunity uh, related to our donors and related to our patients who are living with HIV, who have uh, historically had uh, long waitlist times and been removed from the waitlist at higher rates. The investigators found that there was a, a, a possible opportunity here in the U.S. and to try to do what South Africa had done. And that took a lot of work because in the late 80s, it was obviously at that point where HIV was in the world, it was illegal to use HIV positive tissues or organs for people living with HIV. Uh, so whenever that work was done in South Africa, fast forward, and that was seen by the investigators in the U.S., they then went to work with all the major advocacy groups, um, transplant advocacy groups, HIV groups, and the AMA, and got endorsements from those groups that this would be something to study to try to move forward, and also did a few sort of modeling studies to see and estimate how many organs, potential organs, we might have annually in the U.S., and then once those endorsements were received, some data, initial data was modeled, it was brought before Congress and essentially congressional law had to be changed. Fast forward to 2013, I think, President Obama signed the, the HOPE Act, HIV Organ Policy Equity Act. And then the first transplants were done under this protocol. The first liver and kidney transplants were, transplant was done at Johns Hopkins. And 
the Johns Hopkins group initially started this as um, two different pilots, two different pilot studies, and then larger NIH-funded studies evolved out of those those pilots. And um, today, now I think Sean Paul, we were talking about this earlier, but I think about I guess around 350 transplants have been done throughout the U.S. under these protocols. Which is fantastic. Yeah, I think when we were talking, it was right at 358. So that's incredible. You know, and some of the things that you had talked about, what were some of the overall challenges that were faced by the HIV positive individuals becoming organ donors? The number one issue, and still a large issue, is still stigma related to this infection. And um, which is, you know, completely unnecessary. And, but I think that really held back and has held back a lot of the a lot of the transplant related work that should be going on. And um, it took a long time for that to get going. And I think the the people who work to help design the hope and action protocols really I th- left it left those guidance guidelines pretty broad as long as this was done in the setting of a, a clinical trial where we can evaluate safety very closely where we can make sure that um, patients living with HIV in these studies um, are appropriately consented for this type of research. Also understand that there's no coercion involved um, because historically patients living with HIV have been uh, marginalized in a lot of different aspects in medicine and within research. So within the HOPE safeguards, actually there's a call for an independent advocate. So this is someone outside of the research team, outside of the clinical team that meets with these uh, potential candidates or patients to just make sure that they know that they're not being coerced into doing this. They don't lose their spot on the wait list if this is not something that they're into or interested in doing. Um, So I think there's been such significant advances in the field of HIV with the medicines that we're, we now have. Patients living with HIV have very similar life expectancies to patients without HIV. We also know that people who are uh, have undetectable viral loads cannot transmit HIV through sex. So a lot of science has, has moved forward and is still working on battling a lot of stigma. But in the transplant on the transplant side of things, patients living with HIV have been transplanted for years. It's just now that um, we are able to, under this study and this protocols, use donor organs from HIV positive uh, donors and, and transplant them into patients living with HIV. So I would say that obviously it's a stigma is a huge barrier, but also uh, there was a, a significant legal barrier. To, that needs to be overcome for this type of research to happen. So, Joey, from, from the organ procurement organization and donor hospital perspective, what are some things that you can add of some of the challenges, some of the things that y'all have done to overcome some of those hurdles? I can echo uh, what Dr. Han is saying as far as, you know, even from the donor's side, a lot of people don't want to sign up if they have certain disease processes. I mean, whatever that is, we hear that all the time where, you know, they say, well, I, I can't be a donor because of X or Y. Of course, in the case of HIV or, or living with HIV, uh, you know, that that is one of the, the dominant thought processes. And so one of our challenges was to get out there and educate. 
and uh, educate in the OMVs, educate at um, at every avenue that we can, every every venue that was uh, available to us to be able to let everyone know that you can donate. Like what we say in general to everyone is don't rule yourself out because there's always, you know, the, the next scientific breakthrough that will enable pretty much anyone to be able to be donors. Now from the, that you know, that's the public education. Now from the hospital education side, of course, we've educated them for years on what, uh, which donors are potential uh, for organ donation. And this is one of those that we had to then, you know, as soon as we started working through in 2016, 2017, we worked with Dr. Ann to try to, uh, you know, pave the way for, for HIV donation in the state of Louisiana. And, and in doing so, educating the hospital so that they call those patients in. Now that the, the law has been passed, you know, the HOPE Act has been passed, we were looking to push forward through the research avenue. So we were out there educating all the ICU staff, all the physicians taking care of these patients so that when a patient does pass in a manner that's conducive to organ donation and they're living with HIV at that time, that they can, that everyone knows from the families, to hopefully the patient, just that they have signed themselves on the registry the nursing staff to the physicians so that everyone is aware. Yeah, I mean, and that is that is so important because, you know, one, you began with the community, which is obviously so important because we want to make sure that these these people, these families are informed prior to ever being in that situation of making a decision when a loved one has died. But also the other layer of, of the hospital staff, the physicians, making sure that, you know, we're not ruling patients out where there's an opportunity not only for a family to be given the opportunity of donating and being a hero to someone else, but saving the lives of those in need, which, so all of this really has done, you know, several things. One, you're, you're, you're expanding the pool of available organs and the potential reduction in the wait times for recipients. Thanks for clarifying that. I think it's important to note that patients living with HIV who are interested and in, uh, enrolled in the Hope in Action study have the opportunity to get positive and negative offers. So this is an expanded donor pool, as you mentioned, uh, for people living with HIV. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a smaller amount of these of HIV positive donors, and there's a, a smaller amount of patients living with HIV who are on the transplant wait list. So what we've actually seen, it was published recently, is that patients who are transplanted uh, receive a kidney transplant in the Hope in Action protocols, that their transplant rate is higher and their waitlist time is shorter. And so this is this is really important and we're very excited about this uh, data, about the data that it's showing this. We, we kind of assume that this would be the case, but it's nice that this has actually been demonstrated. Historically, before the Hope in Action protocols, if a donor tested positive for HIV at the time of uh, organ donor evaluation or recovery, then the case was immediately shut down, no questions asked. Because remember, we only have a short 48-hour period to confirm uh, whether the HIV test is, is real, a true positive. So we sometimes have cases where we'd say, this, is, this test doesn't make a lot of sense to be positive in this situation. There was no history, no medication history, 
Um, and we may have some discordant tests. They may have just had a HIV test that was negative, and now this one's saying it's positive. Um, or the labs just look funny overall, but we don't un- historically, and so we didn't have time to confirm this. So under these under the protocols now, we're we're finding that there are a significant amount of false positive donors. So these are organs that would have been just completely discarded. Now we're able to say, hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense that this is a HIV positive donor, but the test, we do have a positive test, but we have a recipient who has already consented that this is an organ. Um, great function, by the way, they don't have any difference in function, just so happens to have HIV, that this is an organ that has may have HIV, the test may or may not, it could be a false positive. And then we move forward with transplant. And then after it's all said and done, we're able to look back at testing, confirmatory testing, and find that these were actually false positive HIV tests. So these are organs now that are being used that historically would have been immediately shut down given the time constraints on confirming an HIV positive test, which I think uh, is, again, another, um, it's another example of how this is expanding the donor pool for the entire U.S., and Dr. Han, can you share a little bit about like some of the outcomes that y'all are seeing from these organs that are being recovered for transplant? Yeah, I think it's important to note that obviously we aren't even evaluating an organ unless the function is acceptable and appropriate within the confines of the way that we evaluate all organs and, and for their quality. So it's we don't just use an organ because a patient is HIV positive, right? I mean, the, the organ has to be uh, something we would normally transplant, and then if it if the donor tests positive for HIV, then it kind of we kind of go down the route of um, potential offers to our candidates who are living with HIV on the wait list. So we're seeing very similar outcomes, overall mortality, as well as graft function for kidney and liver that we uh, see in um, our patients transplanted with donors who do not have HIV. So our, we're very excited about the outcomes and that we are able to offer this to our patients. In certain groups, there might be a slight increased risk of rejection. And patients living with HIV who have undergone transplant in the past, uh, the historic transplant data show that patients living with HIV do have a two times increased risk of rejection, regardless of, of the type of donor. And so we're still, and we're seeing some of that within the Hope in Action study, and that's still trying to be, um, I think, parsed out overall, but we're, overall the outcomes have been fantastic. And, and, and we, and which is what we've kind of expected, but it's important that we're able to show that uh, through these trials um, to make sure patient safety and quality of their outcomes are, are the utmost priority. That's incredible. Joe, one of the things I wanted to, based on what he's talking about, about those outcomes and, and the success and the function of it, I'm sure that has to really, I know that y'all work a lot with families afterwards, the donor families afterwards, and knowing that they save the lives of others, um, and also impacting your staff. Can you share a little bit about what that's been like? Every time we can save a life, it resonates with our staff. You know, every day coming to this job and doing this work, I mentioned job, but it doesn't feel like a job, you know, because it is a, a life's passion for, for all of our staff. It is really important, you know, to our staff that, that works so diligently, tirelessly uh, to help these families have a, a change their grief trajectory some, you know, to, we can't take back their loved one, but we can add something, you know, something positive to, to otherwise what was 
probably oftentimes a senseless or, or a very tragic and sudden death. So, so for us to be able to have this and to be able to offer these families the opportunity to, to say yes and to donate, it's, it's something that we see the, the impact from them and even some of the families that we've worked with uh, with HIV, it's been tremendous, you know, for them and our staff. We see it, you know, because we do work with those those families for years after the donation. It doesn't just stop there. Our, our connection with them lasts for years, and uh, they become part of our second family. And that has a huge impact on all of us. Well, Joey and Dr. Han, listen, I know that we could talk forever, and, and, and I would like to, actually, and so that's why I'm going to invite you to the next episode uh, when we pick back up on something very specific, very rewarding, but I can't thank you all enough for all your commitment and dedication to you and what you're doing to make life happen. So um, thank you again, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being someone that truly cares about organ and tissue donation. It really matters. You can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime at registerme.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Connected by Life on your favorite podcast app. And remember, you're a light worker. Keep shining. This is a production of LOPA. The content in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional medical advice. To read our full disclaimer, please visit our website. The Connected by Life podcast is hosted by myself, Sean Paul Harrison. Our executive producer is Kirsten Heinz. Our production assistant is Chandra Williams. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.